Welcome to the Global Movements Podcast. The Global Movements Podcast is a regular look at recent political developments with a particular focus on countries going through election periods. I'm the former Assistant Secretary General of the International Democrat Union, the global network of centre-right political parties. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to Emily Schultzis, a freelance journalist and Robert Bosch Foundation Fellow based in Berlin. In her journalistic career, she has covered everything from council meetings in her hometown in the San Francisco Bay Area, to presidential campaigns, to the 2013 general federal elections and the 2017 French presidential election. Emily covered the 2012 USA election for Politico. After leaving Politico, she spent 18 months covering Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign for the National Journal, filing stories both for the website and for the National Journal magazine. Her work has appeared on cbsnews.com, in The Atlantic, Politico, Politico Europe, Foreign Policy, National Journal, National Journal Magazine, and Spiegel International Online, amongst others. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Did I mangle your, your surname? It, that's a German name, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's Schultheis. Schultheis. So Schultheis is, a, is an old term for a village mayor in Germany. And it is also a brand here in Berlin, which is which is quite fun. Well, that's that's a, a fine heritage. <laughs> Indeed, uh, Emily, you've written articles for the Atlantic and Foreign Policy on the Hungarian elections. Polling day was yesterday. For those who've seen the news, it's a massive thumping majority for Orban, actually increasing his share of the vote with the Fidesz party to forty-eight point five percent. And the party that came second is Jobbik, gaining just over twenty percent. And the MSZP dialogue block came in third on 12%. Emily, do you have any initial thoughts on why you think the result was what it was? What was your experience covering this election? Look, it's not a surprise that, that Orban and Fidesz won another victory. I think that that was, uh, for the most part, leading up to this election, what everyone believes was going to happen. I do think the fact that they increased their vote share was a little bit of a surprise. Um, particularly given that turnout was at a at a pretty record high uh, for for Hungarian elections in, in the 21st century, and the so opposition I, I were optimistic that that would help them. They were, and I think that that uh, it, it turned out to be obviously not true, uh, in part because Fidesz is it has a massive party operation, um, a massive turnout operation, and and when it comes down to it. Having a higher turnout in some ways can mean that sure opposition voters are are actually showing up to the polls, but it seems that it also means that Fidesz's operation did what it was supposed to do and got out their voters as well. What, what was your experience when you were communicating with the political parties and writing your pieces? So I did find that Fidesz was the hardest for me to get um, any sort of particular foothold in. With other parties, you know, I'm I'm someone who covers elections across Europe, so I come to these races as relative, a relative newcomer in the media of that country and in the politics of that country. Um, I try to reach out to every party before I make one of my reporting trips. Essentially, every other party had no problem meeting with me, speaking with me, telling me about events. Um, I had a tough time with Fidesz. And I, I suspect it's because they tend to, particularly for international media, kind of centralize who their one main spokesman. And if you don't have a connection with the spokesman, you, you don't get a response. Right. Or that, you know, the, the spokesman is, is not someone that you sit down with for two hours and talk about the actual ins and outs of the campaign. The spokesman is someone you contact for a quote. Ah. So, whereas other parties have 
people who, um, in some cases, multiple people who were willing to speak with me and actually sort of talk me through uh, their campaign, talk me through the dynamics for their party, and uh, help me understand what was going on. That was not the experience that I'd had with Tito. This may be my interpretation, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, from the outside, the campaign that Fidesz run, uh, obviously very successfully, was focused on uh, an immigration problem that they don't really have, and the threat from uh, an American financier who, who runs various um, right. uh, think tanks and uh, international um, education outfits called George Soros. Obviously a successful strategy, but um, do you think perhaps they were ashamed to defend that strategy to the international media? I don't know if I um, I don't know if I will go as far as to say that, but I, what I will say is that I think that when you are the party in power um, there or or the front runner in any political race, there's essentially no real reason for you to engage with the press in any kind of meaningful way. And so I think you see that a bit to the extreme in, in Hungary, um, given the given the media environment there, given what Orbán's government has done to sort of um, clamp down on independent media, um, you, you apply the dynamics of any political race where if you're, if you're in the lead, you don't want to engage more than you have to. You don't want to explain your strategies any more than you have to. Mm. Combine that with the media environment in Hungary, and it's kind of not a surprise that they're maybe not the most uh, willing to engage. Can we talk a little bit about Jobbik? Um Despite becoming second, their leader uh, has just resigned. Um, they got over 20%, which is pretty much what they got uh, at the last election. In, in your foreign policy piece, you talked about how the party has tried to move on from its anti-Roma, anti-Brussels stance and become a more uh, centrist party. Right. And you talked about the cosy campaign, or uh, I'm not quite sure you say that in Hungarian, uh, or cuteness <laughs> campaign. But uh, I'm not quite sure either, to be honest. But it, it seems that uh, the, the voters didn't particularly notice this campaign or, or this change of direction. Well, it's, you know, it's tough to tell without knowing exactly which voters you know, voted for Yelby last time versus didn't this time and, and whatnot. My understanding from folks that I talked to was that it's pretty likely that they have picked up some new voters, but that it seems like for every new voter they picked up by moving to the center, they lost some voters uh, from their right wing to Fidesz. And so, you know, it's tough to know exactly what those margins might have been, but it seems like, you know, they they perhaps kept themselves from from declining uh, as they lost voters to Fidesz, but they didn't really expand or broaden their base in any real significant way. And um, you talked also in the article about how, how that's a sort of become a, a necessity for them because, as you highlighted, Fidesz have stolen their clothes. Right. So 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 they, they've had to move to this direction through necessity. But also in your article, you wrote about how others interpreted this as a sort of cynical move and... Um, I think there was a quite a good joke about um, the difference between a squirrel and a rat, and um, <laughs> yeah. a squirrel's just a rat with better PR. Do, do you think they've got a? I mean, with the loss of their leader, um, do you think they're going to go in a different direction now, or, or do you think they're going to try and maintain their strategy and become a sort of second party and a real alternative to Fidesz? I think that that's a real open question and depends a great deal on who it is uh, that succeeds Gabarvona. You had enough internal opposition to this move that I could see it being very possible 
that the, the right wing of the party that's still there says, look, we tried this. This didn't work. We didn't increase our vote share. We need to go back to our roots. We need to be who we've always been. Um, I, I see that argument being very, very much on the horizon. At the same time, you, you look at Sita's gaming support, um, probably based on what we see now, getting a super majority again. Mm-hmm. Uh, being the second largest party. And, and perhaps there really is an opportunity for them to step up, show that they, uh, that they can continue this course, that they can be, um, a legitimate force against Sita's. I don't know which one I don't know which one will happen at this point. I think there's arguments for both and I suspect there are people in the party uh who who would strongly advocate for one way or the other. Um but it is it is a real open question given that they only really maintained their support, uh, whether this new direction continues. There seemed to be a um a, a clear acknowledgement amongst the opposition that they would have to work together if they were going to make any headway against Fidesz. That they don't seem to have done that. Do, do you think they are now going to be regretting not being more cooperative? I mean, you, you wrote about how there is a strong financial incentive for parties not to uh, stand down um, as they would lose uh, particular funding. Um, what do you think that's going to mean? I mean, is it that the the parties wouldn't cooperate with Yobbik? Um, and as they seem the only viable electoral alternative, do you think that was a mistake? Did, did you get to speak to any of the smaller parties? I've spoken to them before the election. I have not spoken to them since the results have come out. I think it's, you know, it's, it's tough, right? It's, you talk to these parties and they really all seem, whether it was Yelvik on the right or um, the Socialist Coalition on the left or any of the other smaller parties, they framed this election as, you know, a, as a turning point for the future of Hungarian democracy. And I think you, when you frame the election that way, it's been a little bit, it doesn't quite, uh, it doesn't quite add up. It doesn't quite make sense to then say, okay, so this is about the future of democracy. If, if the opposition does not stand together to win this election, um, then we will be giving four more years to someone we see as an authoritarian figure in our country. Um, but at the same time, we don't really want to compromise with people that have different political views than us, or we don't really want to give up the financial uh, benefits of having a candidate in every race, or, well, but I don't know if our voters would vote for a Yelvick candidate, and we don't want to take that chance. Uh, many people view that Orban has been anti- anti-democratic with some of his actions um, over the last, well, 12 years now, uh, rolled back the independent media, judiciary, and allowed corruption to run rife. What do you think the next four years are going to look like under Orban? When I was in Budapest, I, I had more than one person tell me that they thought that if Orban won another supermajority this year in 2018, that this was going to be the last actually free and fair election in Hungary. Um, I'm not sure to what extent that was a campaign talking point and to what extent that's a real and true fear among some of the people I spoke with. I suspect it's closer to a real and true fear at this point. But, I mean, I think that you've seen him really sort of slowly chipping away at, at democratic institutions, at civil society institutions, um, really working to uh, centralize power in his government in every way that he can. And, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know about, I don't know that I have specific 
actions that I suspect we'll see next, but I think that you will continue to see this chipping away um, in this uh, sort of gradual descent into something that doesn't look like, well, something that in, in Viktor Orban's own words is an illiberal democracy. Right. And by by winning, not only winning this election, but by winning with a stronger result than he did four years ago, that gives his government really incredible legitimacy to do what it wants. Uh, and that's, I think, what scares a lot of people coming and, out of this election. And probably scares those in Brussels who were hoping that he would at least be weakened um, and perhaps humble. Exactly. And, and now he's going to be emboldened when he goes to Brussels with his uh, demands. And that's going to that's going to be a problem because much of what he's doing goes against the grain of what European uh, values are supposed to be about. But with such right. a strong democratic mandate, it's very hard for them to criticise him, right? It is, I think, in that, and you, you've seen that just in these last you know, 24 hours as we've started to see various leaders congratulating Orban, um, in most cases making no reference to any sort of voting irregularities or the electoral system, which, of course, surely helped bring this result about. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a really tough line to walk because Hungary is a member of the EU, but, but in so many ways um, looks more like it's, its eastern neighbors than it does like the, West, the western part of the EU. Um, so it's, it is very difficult uh, to know what to do if you are, if you're Angela Merkel, if you are some of the leaders in Brussels. It's, it's a, a really delicate um, stance for them to, right. and, and, to do going forward. And Fidesz is in the same political party in Europe, uh, the European People's Party, right. as Angela Merkel. Uh, right. So, so that's limited the criticism that has been levied, presumably, uh, at um, Orban. And they've made noises along the lines of, well, we hope this is campaign rhetoric and it will quiet down after the election type stuff. Uh, but not, not very convincing uh, denunciations of uh, some of the more um, reckless elements of his agenda. Right. Well, and I think too, if you're if you are uh, one of these political parties who is also um, a part of EPP, you've got you've watched Fidesz change over the last eight years. You know, when when Orban was was elected again in 2010. It was not the party that it is today. It's been kind of a gradual dissension, a descent into this, into this uh, current political situation and into um, the position that Orban now holds uh, within the country. And so, you know, in 2010, Fidesz was was a center right party, was perhaps a bit more nationalist and a bit more radical than than its counterparts in Germany and elsewhere. But but it was not what it is today. And so, if you are their colleagues in the European Parliament, you're sort of saying, okay, well, you know, we've they were relatively similar to us. They've changed over the years. It's happened gradually, and you know, what do we say now? How do we deal with them now? Yeah, when, when, I don't, you know, I, I don't know is the answer. When's the breaking point? Um, exactly. Well, you also covered the elections uh, in Germany, and. I know that obviously there was a significant breakthrough there for AFD, who uh, I think, as you wrote in one of your articles, broke the rules of uh, were there unspoken rules of of, of German uh, political campaigning. 
um, with a very nativist appeal, which is something quite alien to the post-war experience right. in Germany. Um, we don't have, we don't have time to go through all of the countries in Europe. Do you see trends that you you can identify um, that that have common themes in the, the elections you covered in Italy and Germany and France with, with the rise of uh, right wing populists? Can you pull any sort of common threads throughout that? I know this sure. is a topic you're interested in. <laughs> it is. I mean, I think so, so there are several. And of course, uh, I do think it's worth noting that what happened in Hungary yesterday, I would place that a little bit aside from, from Germany or France or Austria or, or Italy. But I think the the overarching thing is that regardless of how much electoral success right-wing populist parties have had or or in the case of Italy, um, the five-star movement isn't right-wing. It's sort of amorphous and difficult to place on a spectrum. But the rise of these parties, in Germany, you saw AFD winning you know, just under 13%. In France, you saw Marine Le Pen make it to the second round and win 33%. Um, in Italy, you have the five-star movement and the right-wing Lega Nord together winning over 50% of the vote. And so you know, it, it, they've had differing levels of electoral success, but I think the thing that ties everything together is that no matter which country you're looking at, these parties have uh, greatly affected both the rhetoric and the conversation leading up to the elections and the process of actually forming a government and governing afterward. So in Germany, like you mentioned, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it has typically been harder for far-right parties to break through, but even, even having AFD there, even having them uh, as part of the campaign and a very vocal and visible part meant that Angela Merkel and her Christian Democrats were put under a great deal of, of pressure to move to the right on certain issues. And looking after the election, it took almost six months to form a government, which if you'd taken that 13% support from the AFD and spread it among the CDU and the Social Democrats and maybe the, the FDP, the Free Democrats, you wouldn't have had such a difficult time forming a government. Uh, I think we're watching the same government formation issue under uh, you know, unfold in, in Italy right now. And so I guess that's one thing that I would say is for anyone who had previously said, oh, well, you know, these parties haven't taken over government, so, so perhaps the populist wave is not as strong as we think it is. I think that that's kind of short-sighted. Um, and I think that we are seeing the beginning of something and not the end of something. And my mind often refers to the question of what happens when the next recession comes. You know, apparently right. Europe is growing um, fairly anemically, but but it is growing. Jobs are being produced, and you've got a wonderful economy in Germany, um, one of the strongest. And yet, you're still seeing this uh, rise in nationalist sent- sentiment. What do you think will happen if if we we get into that situation whereby there's a severe economic downturn, if France, you know, hits the buffers, if the reform efforts of Macron don't come through, you know, could could we be talking right. about some of the biggest countries taking over with with, with right wing government uh, with far right governments? I don't think that it's outside of the realm of possibility. Uh, for example, you know, out for France, I spent two months in Paris uh, reporting on that election, and 
the people that I talked to were much more afraid of Marine Le Pen in 2022 than they were of Marine Le Pen in 2017. You know, of course, everyone <laughs> said, given given the Brexit vote and given Donald Trump, well, we can't rule anything out. We don't think she'll win, but you never know. But they were much more afraid of what things looked like in five years if if things didn't go well after this election. And so, so yeah, I think there is a real chance of that. And that chance is aided by um, the decline, you know, speaking of another major trend that we've seen this year, the decline of the center left in a social democracy across uh, most of Europe at this point. And when you have major center right and center left parties that don't seem to be don't seem to be talking about solutions in a way that connects with voters as mm. much as it used to. Um, social democratic parties sort of being a little bit rudderless and and directionless. Uh, none of that makes it easier for those parties to retain power if there is some sort of major recession or economic downturn. Right. So and I think you know they need to come up with some some solutions as well. And so far, I haven't really seen that. And the establishment, uh, I mean, as, as you rightly pointed out, disastrous election in Italy, awful election in Germany for, for the Social Democrats, uh, right. terrible election in France for the for both the, the both the established uh, centre-right and centre-left um, parties. Uh, the, the, the right party seems to be doing a bit better than the left, um, at least some of the established right parties in some of the countries. But what do you think is the failure of social democracy – what what is what is going on? Why are people so turned off uh, in so many countries against traditional social democracy? Well, I think there are, there are a couple of arguments uh, on this front, and I've just spent a little bit of time writing about this in German for for a German newspaper. I think you know ahead of the Italian election, um, a group of journalists we met with one of the ministers in the uh, Democratic Party government, mm. and and I asked him why is this happening to your party and other parties across Europe? And, you know, what are you, what are you doing about it? What do you think that, that your party, that other social democratic parties can do? And his answer, I think, was a bit generous, which was that, well, you know, social democratic parties were founded in the 20th century, um, fighting for certain sets of rights, fighting for certain ideals and things. And in a lot of ways, they've accomplished what they set out to do. And we talk about workers' rights and workplace safety and, and some of these, uh, and some of the social system things that they've been fighting for, he's right in saying that a lot of that has actually been accomplished. And his point was that these parties don't understand how to operate in the new world that they've created. Um, I think that's that's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it, when it comes to countries like Germany, for example, is that you, at the end of the 20th century and the early years of the 21st century, saw center-left parties trying this sort of third-way, centrist, we're going to shake things up in order to uh, maintain support, and in the process, perhaps, abandon some of those ideals that they originally stood for. So you've seen in Germany that argument made a great deal about the late, you know, late 90s, early 2000s Social Democrats. So I think, it, I mean, those are two very different arguments, but I think they both have merit when we talk about these parties struggling to uh, to really maintain and create an identity that resonates with voters. Right, and the uh, other um, example of that is uh, Tony Blair's Labour Party, 
which 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 died and then was reborn <laughs> as uh, a socialist party called the Labour Party. Happened right. to be called the Labour Party, but but entirely a different party now than um, you know the, the Tony Blair Clinton esque um, bill. I mean, um, yeah, uh, but new new Labour centrist third way project. But Jeremy Corbyn has managed to revive the fortunes of the Labour Party. They didn't win the last election, but they did a heck of a lot better than expected. They have half a million uh, party members now, which makes them the largest, I think, right. social democrat party uh, in Europe. And he's campaigned on a very clear socialist, old school socialist message of right. uh, tax and spend, redistribution, renationalization. A lot of the things which social democrats in, in Europe are, are, have been loath to do. Right. And I think that's, I think that is one of the points actually that center-right politician made to me in Austria when I asked about the differences between center-right uh, decline and center-left decline, was that center-right parties tend to be, on the whole, much better at adapting. They tend to be a little bit more pragmatic um, versus social democracy tends to be more um, focused on it, well, a little bit more kind of saying we need to stick to these values that we've always stood for. And I think, you know, in, in, in Austria, you saw that very much. So this guy was talking to me from the Austrian People's Party, which under Sebastian Kurz uh, took a very sharp turn to the right on immigration. I mean, for, for social democracy, though, I think, I think it is you have to be, in all cases, you have to be, uh, you have to show people that you are new, that you are something different, that you somehow credibly, whether you are actually new or not, um, can appear to be something new to the voters. And so I think you saw that again in Austria. I think you saw with Macron in France, he, he came out of the, you know, sort of socialist wing of politics. He'd worked in, in the previous socialist government, but he created a movement and was able to tell people that he was something new and they believed him. And so for a lot of these parties, I mean, I think you have to, you have to present yourself as something different. And in the case of the UK, that was shifting labor away from the Tony Blair era and, and into the Jeremy Corbyn era. Uh, for other social democratic parties, I'm not sure what that is yet. I think, and this is my thought, uh, that the two fundamental problems uh, are, are driving all of the problems for the social democrats. One is immigration, mostly outside of Europe. Number two is the euro. Because with the strong rules against deficit spending, they don't really have very much to offer voters. They refuse to shift on immigration to the place where voters have got to. And they can't do anything on um, finance, uh, fiscal policy, because the euro prevents them from doing it. So what is the offer? Right. <laughs> what is the offer to, to the working Joe? You know, the guy in the coffee house in, in, in Austria. Um who can't smoke anymore. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and I think both, both of those two issues, the, the, the centre-right is better at addressing those. You know, fiscally, the centre-right is always you know, more restrictive. And on immigration, much more prepared to, uh, to adopt uh, more strident anti-immigration postures than, than the left would do. Right. Um, and and to my mind, until, until they get their head around addressing those, you know, whenever they speak about it, they just talk about needing to communicate better, and, and, and voters aren't buying that. It's not that they're not 
hearing. They, yeah. they, they just they just don't like what they're hearing. They, they want to hear something else. And, right. uh, and, and to my mind, until they address those two things, I, I, I don't think there's going to be any real progress for, for social democracy uh, in Europe. And right. um, I know you have to go. Can I just ask you one more question about the USA? Absolutely. Um, sure. <laughs> you, you covered the 2016 election that brought the world uh, President Trump. <laughs> what are the parallels and differences between the European experience of populism um, and the USA? I think the biggest differences stem from the fact that our party system is so different. You know, when you have a two-party system, you've seen Trump um, effectively co-opt the Republican Party, despite the fact that his views only represent the views of, of a small section of it. Um, I actually just recently saw Paul Ryan speak to the Czech Parliament in Prague, and he was explaining that effectively our political system, you know, within the Republican Party, you've got three or four, uh, three or four distinct parties, as we've been in the European system. So I do think that that's, you know, that does explain a little bit the differences in in numbers um, and and electoral success of some of these parties. But on the whole, I mean, look, he's Trump has advocated for an America first foreign policy. Um, he is nationalist in a way that none of our recent presidents, uh, in a way that they, none of them have really been. Um, he speaks about immigration in a very similar way to what we see across Europe. Um, I, I think that some of these, some of the themes and trends that are driving the success of Trump are very much similar to what you see driving the success of these parties in Europe. Um, and then I think the other major similarity that I would, would mention as well is, is in the demographics of some of these voters. You saw in the 2016 election that Trump, um, it tended to be lower to middle income people, it tended to be slightly less educated people, tended to be people from parts of the country uh, where immigration was not really a problem, and those people then ended up being some of the most anti-immigration people in the country. Uh, and he also was really talented in bringing in people who maybe didn't vote in the last election or the last several elections. And at least, you know, in, in the German election, a lot of those, those characteristics hold true. Um, in the French election, a lot of those characteristics hold true. These parties are bringing in people who, um, who, who are either previous voters from one of the major parties who have just decided that those parties don't listen to them or don't speak for them anymore, um, or they're people who never voted before, and and all of a sudden see this new party as the answer to their to their problems and complaints. So those would be some of the the bigger things that I've noticed. But I do think that we are seeing um, we're seeing voters start to act in similar ways really across the West, and and these trends are um, certainly certainly larger than, than country or even continent borders. Emily, thank you very much for your time on the uh, podcast. I really appreciate you being on with me today. Uh, I look forward to speaking to you next time. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.